0: ABC Listen, podcasts, radio, news, music, and
1: more. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Bunurong, Bunwarang peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, as well as the Wurundjeri, Gadigal, and Waramai people and people of the Kenamaluka. Just a heads up, this episode contains strong language. Until you see it, it's hard to appreciate the otherworldliness of the landscape these trees that are overhanging the river. There's no shoreline, there are just a wall of trees that literally dip into the river around me. I'm on the west coast of Tasmania, a little island south of Australia. It's taken hours to get here. We've driven over mountains and through forests. After getting on a boat and crossing a harbour, we're now motoring up towards a place called the Franklin River. As I look around, I'm in awe. It's an overcast day, it's been raining earlier, it's stopped now, but there's this mist hanging in the pockets of the trees and slowly lifting and it gives us this this majestic feel. I'm here to retrace the route that thousands of people my age took back in 1982 as part of Australia's biggest environmental protest. They joined a blockade in this forest and about 1,400 were arrested for it. Up higher, you've got this mist hanging over the top tree lines and it just gives it all this kind of ethereal quality. And you can see why 40 years ago, this landscape motivated so many people to protect it. The Franklin goes through one of the last temperate rainforests in the world, filled with rare and endangered plants and animals. There are so few places like this left, and the ones that remain exist because people have fought to protect them from development. This whole area was almost completely drowned for a power scheme. Go them! Go them! I'm Joe Lauder, and this is Saving the Franklin, season three of the ABC's Dig podcast. I came of age in Australia's nasty climate wars, and as a Triple J journalist, I've been reporting on climate change, the environment and young people for years. I know we're running out of time to make the changes we need and we can't keep having these toxic debates about climate change. So I'm looking for answers in what's known as Australia's biggest environmental battle, the fight to save the Franklin River, a fight that won, a fight that started the Greens movement in Australia, one that's now a major political force.
2: It was a collection of young, invigorated environmentalists, and defiance was in the air.
1: There were rallies across the country, with tens of thousands of people flooding the streets on both sides of the fight. And it all came to a head at the 1982 blockade. We've never ever
2: seen any of you bastards about oh, oh, how can you tell that that scheme is the best one for us? There was protest after protest, each one bigger than the last.
1: And all of this over whether to dam Tasmania's last major wild river.
2: The whole world is watching the wilderness war But we don't have to ask What are we fighting for?
1: So I decided, 40 years on, it's time to revisit the Franklin.
2: It was a civil war within Tasmania. You fucking little grainy. So I have these images that, are to this day, still traumatic for me.
3: My job is now on the line and my husband's is on the line. We want to work, we are not bludgers. We don't want to line up at the doll office and get the doll.
0: All these political battles were among
1: the white people. A protest to save a river, in which the protest and its coverage became far more important than the river itself. I want to know, when it comes to a fight for the environment, what does it take to win? It's going to move me to tears to
3: think about what a group of people in their early 20s achieved. That's the moment I thought,
1: oh, we're going to win this. If enough people stand up, if enough people care, we can win. This is episode one.
0: So, so this one's live, this one here? This one? Mm, yeah. Okay. That's all
3: good.
1: Great. Right. And you're recording? Yeah. Okay. All right. How uh, close?
3: Yeah, no, You'll tell me anyway.
1: I'm in the Melbourne studio with a woman named Karen Alexander. Karen was a key player in the Franklin campaign and she's crucial to me understanding where the fight for the Franklin came from.
3: Okay, I'll get one of the posters so you can have a look at that later. But then I also got out this set of newspaper clippings. There was films and photos, but, you know, so here it is. It's,
1: like, typed up on an old typewriter. Oh, well, that's all you had. (laughs) So this, this is like a this scrapbook. This is a she, scrapbook. Karen Alexander comes across straight away as warm and no-nonsense. As someone who's practical and loves the outdoors, she gives off retired geography teacher vibes. Look here in this photo. She's showing me her scrapbook with news clippings and photos, but she's not talking about the Franklin River. This place is a place of beauty, totally special. She's talking about somewhere else, a place that no longer exists. It's just the Petter dunes under. just behind the beach. The beach is there on the right hand side. Lake Pedder, a glacial lake in Tasmania's southwest, with a sandy, pale pink beach surrounded by mountains. Karen's seen a lot of beautiful places in her time, but she told me it was Lake Pedder that really shaped her and that eventually led her to the Franklin. So before I get to the Franklin, I need to start with what happened to Lake Pedder. The fight to save Lake Pedder was almost like a dress rehearsal for the Franklin River, with many of the same players and the same power dynamics. It ended with the disappearance of one of the main activists and the theory that she could have been murdered. We'll get to that bit later. The lake's beautiful beach is now lost underwater. But 50 years ago, Karen was walking along its pristine sand. You know what it's like being in a cathedral and you can feel overawed
3: with the sort of grandeur of this thing and the size of it? This was like this, but 100 times more, because it was totally encompassing.
1: Karen was 19 years old when she first saw Lake Pedder. To get there, she and her friends had gone the scenic route through southwest Tasmania... They walked for over three weeks through the bush. Suddenly you're out on this incredible beach, like just sort of a beach that you think, how can a beach be this big? The pinkish-white beach stretched about three kilometres along one side of this inland lake. 10,000 years ago, it was a glacier, and the glacier rubbed against the pink quartz of the mountains. That's where the sand comes from. Your eye sort of stretches down this beach along beside the dune and it
3: was half a k wide or so at that time. It did vary a bit, but nearly always had a really wide beach. And then and then into the ray of mountains. You're just there with it and sort of gradually, slowly explore it. It was in front of you, it was beside you, it was over you, it was behind you. It was
1: just everywhere everywhere. Just like the Franklin Wood, years later, Lake Petter captivated and moved Karen. She didn't need to see scientific reports documenting rare species. She could feel this ancient place was special in her very bones.
3: Here we were at Lake Petter and this helicopter comes in.
1: They're so noisy, those things. This was the other way into Lake Petter. Planes and choppers would land on the smooth beach... And here was a chopper in Nature's Cathedral, piercing the silence. But also, when you've been with the same group for nearly a month and you're on a remote glacial beach, well, it'd be rude not to have a chat to the newcomers. I was more excited about going in for a ride. And
3: of course, I just said, oh, can we can we go up with you? So we, So we did.
1: they could see the towering range of mountains called the Sentinels to their north, and below them, the deep-coloured lake. From the air, you could see these geometric patterns in the sand through the shallow water, like cuts you'd see in a gemstone. But these guys weren't here for the view. It was the Hydro doing some type of investigating. They were workers for Tasmania's Hydroelectric Commission and they were doing a recce for a proposal for a mega dam in this valley. Karen didn't know it yet, but that majestic beach and the land around it would disappear underwater. So much of what she could see, except the towering mountains, gone. Did you feel somewhat, like, awkward or conflicted towards them or, like, curious about what they were doing there at the time, doing the surveys? No,
3: you know, I didn't. I didn't perceive them as a major threat. I think in
1: my naivety, I would have thought, well, you wouldn't do that, would you? I mean, why would you do that? Why? Well, this island state at the southern end of Australia, known affectionately as Tassie, also known affectionately for being 30 years behind the mainland, for decades it had been on a dam-building binge. The dams fed huge turbines, the turbines generated cheap electricity... The cheap electricity fed power-hungry factories, and the factories were exporting stuff all over the world. In those post-war years, Tassie was booming on the back of hydro, but in 1967, all the dams dried up and so power was running out.
2: And all domestic consumers will be asked to do all that they possibly can to save consumption of power in their homes, in their businesses, or in any other way. Daylight saving was introduced in a bid to cut power consumption and the government worked desperately to take other steps to compensate.
1: With the threat of blackouts hanging over the state, the hydro scrambled to build more power schemes.
2: A new vital energy source for the state, with the added bonus of providing a sporting and recreational playground.
1: This was a hydro commission sell to Tasmanians.
2: For more than 40 years, the Hydroelectric Commission has produced the cheap power that has brought industry to the small, isolated state. The commission itself, plus the major power consumers, employ one in four of every Tasmanian. That means that if you took those out, the the state would probably become unviable.
1: The thinking was that for the boom to continue, the dam building had to continue. And next on the list was Lake Pedder. But a shallow lake can't generate power – For hydro, they needed to flood the entire valley and make the lake 25 times the original size.
2: There will be established there a vast waterway. Nearly 30 times the amount of water in Sydney Harbour. And in the calm days, that vast waterway will reflect the whole magnificent scene that's all around. Far and away, the largest storage in Australia will be in two parts, joined by a canal. The spot where I'm standing now will be under about 50 feet of water. Lake Pedder and the beach, as they are today, will be lost forever.
1: As the plan to dam the lake became a reality, there was still a sort of disbelief for Karen Alexander. She thought the whole thing would get called off at some point. But others weren't so optimistic. As construction started on the first mega dam wall, a small group started to get angry and organised. Do you want to start by introducing yourself?
2: Mm. Okay. Well, my name's Kevin Kinnan, and I am a Tasmanian of about six generations or so standing. I grew up on the slopes of the mountain behind Hobart. I realised I could draw these two lines from the summit of the mountain to the west coast, and it defined this big wedge of wild country with no roads in it. And it was, to me as a kid, it was really exciting that this great wild place started virtually in my own backyard.
1: Kevin Kiernan's a born and bred Tasmanian. He's retired now, but he doesn't stay still for long. He's always off on some adventure in nature. In our first chat together, he described himself to me as an irresponsible geriatric. In the 60s, though, he was just a high school student when he joined the Save Lake Pedder campaign.
2: I do recall sitting writing press releases and letters to the editor in the back row of desks during classes. I'd sit down in the back of, of, I remember in particular, the chemistry laboratory and with a piece of paper and just be ostensibly taking notes for an actual fact I was spending all my time writing a press release or, or writing a letter.
1: Did your classmates know like, anything about your involvement with the Lake Petter campaign at that point in time?
2: In the days when the Petter campaign was pretty small, I think I was regarded as pretty weird for being interested It was, In some ways, it was quite an isolating experience to be involved in in the campaign, isolating from my own generation.
1: What about what your parents thought about this, you being involved in this campaign?
2: (laughs) I really don't know what they thought about it initially, but they became very staunch pet of people. Mum and Dad and I flew down there and we landed on the sand and were just overwhelmed by this vast basin of, of light. I think it changed all of us forever. It certainly changed my life.
1: So Kevin Kiernan and this band of PETA activists started to put public pressure on the hydro.
2: The other people there were all considerably older than me. I particularly remember uh, Brenda Heen, who was uh, very much a, a lady, but with a, a radical streak when it came to Lake PETA.
1: Brenda Heen. This is a battleground for conservation. And if we lose Peter, so much will be lost for the cause. Brenda Heen was all class. She taught piano, played organ at church, always dressed impeccably and looked just about the opposite of what you'd expect from a radical environmental campaigner. Not to mention she was in her 70s. She had this almost spellbinding effect over Kevin.
2: I can recall going to, to meetings at Brenda's house, which was always immaculate with wonderful antiques and things everywhere. I was always gobsmacked by just how spectacular the place looked.
1: She seemed to have um, inspired a lot of awe in a lot of people who did meet her and get to work with her at that point in time. It sounds like it was quite similar for you, this kind of, like you said, that strength of her convictions.
2: Yeah, yeah. The stories I heard from somebody who accompanied her once to visit the editor was she just kept transfixing him with this steely gaze until the poor man just withered away to dust. And she got to write these articles in the Mercury about the fact that there was an alternative to flooding Lake Pedder.
1: Because of the campaign, more people were becoming aware of Lake Pedder, what might be lost, and some were also starting to resent the activists.
2: Some of us had had things like sabotage to our cars when we were parked down at, at, at Scotts Peak or on the Gordon Road while we were in at Lake Pedder. You knew this that that. Um, things got done. But this was Tasmania. Some, nothing really nasty ever happens in Tasmania, does it?
1: The campaigners were running out of time. The first of four dam walls that blocked water back to Lake Pedder was finished in 1971. Both major political parties were still in favour of new dams. So they could campaign all they liked, but no one with the power to stop the dam was listening.
2: The Hydroelectric Commission was effectively Tasmania's government. Um, The commissioner got paid more than the premier. He was de facto virtually a cabinet member. Um, So we had to look wider afield.
1: They decided that if the politicians weren't listening, damn it, they'd try and become politicians themselves. And they threw their hat into the 1972 state election. They pulled together the first environmental political party in the world, the United Tasmania Group, also known as the UTG, it's crazy, right? The birth of the first Greens party in the world, here in this little island that some people mistake for the country Tanzania. There were only three candidates. Of course, Brenda Heen was one, pulling it off with a signature style and class.
3: Our politicians here obviously have made up their minds since 1967 that nothing further can be done. And we feel sure that there are many facets that haven't been fully investigated 200 scientists from throughout Tasmania are completely dismissed. The natural fauna and flora of the area really hasn't been investigated properly.
1: But their election hopes flopped. Not one of the UTG candidates got elected. Instead, the worst possible outcome from their point of view. The so-called Electric Eric returned as Premier. Eric Rees got that nickname for his gung-ho support of hydro-electrification. And he wasn't keen on those trying to stand in his way.
2: Unfortunately, I think these people can be compared with Dr Frankenstein, who was a very kindly man. But he created a monster that he couldn't control.
1: Not long after, the second damn wall was finished and closed. And the fate of Petter was a step closer. By this point, the young bushwalker Karen Alexander had lost her naive optimism. She went with a friend to have a last look at Lake Pedder. He must have probably said to me, "Shall we go in to Lake Pedder for the,
3: You know, no, he wouldn't have said for the last time. You didn't say it. You know, shall we go in? To, yes, yes, yes. I'd flown in and walking down there at night, um, going. with three or four of us had gone in, and and, and that other sense of, "Well, I'm not going to see it again." No, this is it, this is it. And not wanting to go again, not wanting to even see it filling up. And we walked, I remember walking down the beach, I think we all just held hands. There was this sense of, we, we're here for this last time. But not much was said. And then I went off on my own, you know, sang, sang, I remember sang the song.
1: So it's clear that you cared quite deeply about it, even just taking the time to do this. Oh, it's
3: tragic. Look here in this photo. It's tragic. It was awful. It was just... I think one of the things was... It was really... Even at that tender age, I could tell there was something terribly wrong with my community that would allow the destruction of something that was so beautiful. There didn't seem to me any other argument you needed. This place is a place of beauty, of of totally special, not seen... You won't find any you wouldn't find anything else like that in the rest of the world and here it is.
1: This makes me think of one of Australia's other natural wonders. I've had friends say to me that they want to see the Great Barrier Reef before it's gone, kind of like a climate pilgrimage. Kevin Keenan also made a final trip
2: you know, at the peak of its popularity, just before it, it went under and people were trying to get there to say they'd seen Lake Petter, I think I saw 20 planes stationary on the beach, just parked like it was a commercial airfield almost. But there was one flight I remember taking in with, I think, Brenda, and we landed on the beach. I think we were the last two planes ever on the beach. And we took off and I remember looking down as Bill took off and I did have this sinking feeling that that was the last time I was ever going to see it. It's still a fairly gut-wrenching memory, but I don't know that i actually completely given up by any means because I kept on campaigning.
1: Just like Kevin, the older, refined activist Brenda Heen was adamant about reversing things. Lake Pedder was flooding, but it was like a bathtub slowly filling up. There was still time to pull the plug. Right
0: In Archie words, we're flying to Canberra to talk to parliamentarians and
1: sky-right, save Lake Petter, over Canberra. On a clear Hobart morning in the spring of 1972, Brenda Heen climbed into a tiny tiger moth plane. It was like a, those little model planes that you make up from a kit. So <laughs> it looked like. Her niece, Celia Watchhorn, was there to see her off.
0: There was one ABC cameraman and he remarked that there was no other media there. And he was saying, no, what if the politicians don't listen to it?"
2: Well, just at what stage will you call it today?
1: Never. There's a
2: lot of British spirit energy, you
1: know. There was just one other person in the plane, Brenda's friend and pilot, Max Price. The ground staff prepared them for takeoff.
0: You'd have to hand start the propeller blades do you remember being like excited? Yeah. Oh well, yes, definitely. Like there was an aura of excitement and an expectation, and it was a pretty amazing thing to be happening. She buoyed people by her sense of spirit, absolutely, hmm. and
1: purpose. One minute after takeoff, Max made contact with air traffic control to say the plane was on course. Someone on the northeast coast of Tasmania, near St Helens, saw the tiny tiger moth plane flying peacefully overhead. But that was the last time Brenda and Max were ever seen or heard from. When Kevin Keenan heard that the plane had gone missing, he remembered something chilling, something that had happened in the days leading up to the flight. At the time, Kevin was busy at the Pedder's shop in Hobart, their little campaign base.
2: In the back room, which was only like a a very few square metres, it was a, a mess of desks, chairs, piles of paper, unwashed coffee cups and bushwalking gear.
1: Brenda Heen came bustling in.
2: And about the first thing she said to me was she just had this, I think she said funny phone call. Asking
0: her about why they were going and what she was intending to do and Nandi Bren said, well, no, we're never going to give up Hope, we're going to Canberra, we'll talk to the politicians. And um, and then the, and the caller said, Mrs Heen, how would you like to go for a swim? And then hung up and Max Price, the pilot, received a similar call. It obviously put a knot in her stomach but it didn't dampen her sense of purpose and identity and she was on a mission. Brenda said she felt she knew the voice, but she couldn't pinpoint whose it was. Mm. But it sent shivers up my spine thinking about it.
1: That wasn't all. There were some signs that the plane's hangar may have been broken into. The door had been smashed with an axe, and it turns out the emergency beacon wasn't even on board the plane. It was in the hangar. To some, that seemed suspicious. Max was an experienced aviator. Would he have really left behind the safety beacon? people started to form their own ideas. Maybe something happened when Max switched to the second fuel tank as they were flying?
0: The theory that there may have been sugar put in the second fuel tank, they would have got to St Helens, changed over fuel tanks because that was the distance that they could get on the first fuel tank. Turned over, sugar in the
2: second tank, so it's contaminated. We were all completely shocked at the loss of Brandon and of Max.
1: Police did investigate, but they didn't get answers. I don't expect to solve the mystery in this podcast either, and that's not why I'm here. This disappearance and the suspicions around the flight, they're important because they shaped the fear that the environmentalists felt into future campaigns and the powers that they felt that they were up against. When someone you know goes missing, there's no sort of single moment when you know they're not coming back. The way Celia tells it, it's sort of like a creeping dread that starts out small and grows. It was such a waiting game. You never think the worst. You just,
0: you know, you wait, you wait, you wait. You think, well, it must be somewhere. The search went for 10 days only and then it was stopped, um, closed. It's really amazing that there was no flotsam jetsam if it came down in the sea because of the plywood and the um, canvas. Uh, If it would have broken up. Um, no fires. If it had come down in the forest, you'd think there would be fire, smoke, whatever. So it was light, it could glide. And Max knew that, and he could have brought it down, um, you know, to land on a beach, if needs be. Celia and the
1: rest of Brenda's family, there's sort of an unresolved grief. It's like a book that doesn't finish, and you kind of wonder... How has all this made you feel about politics and especially politics in Tasmania? Well,
0: there's always been the power and conservation at um, two ends of the spectrum. I feel really proud in that that's a proud moment in that auntie brand 50 years ago and others lost their lives to fight for conservation, to fight against the powers that be.
1: Saving Lake Pedder was always a long shot, so Kevin was resigned at this point.
2: I don't think there was ever a stage at which I thought we would win until the federal inquiry into Lake Pedder following the election of the Whitlam Labor Government in 1972.
1: A year after Brenda's disappearance, a new federal Labor government held an inquiry into Lake Pedder. It found that the dam should be stopped because Lake Pedder had scientific and conservation value. The problem was that they had no legal power to force Tasmania to stop. All they could do was offer compensation, which ultimately Tasmania rejected.
2: The money was never taken up by the Tasmanian government and that's where it lay. And so the... Waters slowly filled behind the dams and Pedder went under.
1: Today, the pale pink dunes still sit under the dark waters, unaffected by surface currents. Divers say the coarse sand is still there. The tire marks from those last planes that landed on the beach still eerily intact decades later, 16 metres below the surface. It might not sound like it today, but Kevin remembers the Lake Petter campaign always having this sense of fun and defiance, even after some public meeting or court hearing where they just had their asses handed to them. They'd come out of it and be laughing and plotting about what to do next. But after Brenda and Max disappeared, and after the Whitlam government didn't save the lake, something broke inside Kevin.
2: The end of that phase of the PETA campaign left me feeling pretty burnt. It left me very disillusioned with the political process and with a community that's prepared to allow such an inadequate process to prevail and continue to cause damage in all sorts of other ways. I guess I lost a lot of trust.
1: After I interviewed Kevin... I couldn't stop thinking about this one thing he said. He said that in the early days as an activist, he used to get pissed off at veteran environmental campaigners who checked out and gave up.
2: It wasn't until I got that burnt and burnt out myself that I realised just why those folk who had contributed so much were just standing back at a distance.
1: What Kevin said about that time in his life reminded me so much of a conversation I had recently with a climate advocate – She'd poured years into campaigning and been through all the emotions. She said that one of the reasons that climate spaces have so many young, passionate people at the fore is partly because older activists get burnt out. They get ground down by the losses. They get pessimistic about their communities. They lose all faith in the political processes. And so they get out. Kevin thought about getting out, but because of Brenda, he couldn't.
2: She'd put everything into the campaign and there was no way we were going to back off. I mean, she probably would have come back and haunted us big time if we'd done
1: that. Instead, Kevin and other activists pulled themselves together and decided to double their efforts for their next fight. They learned an important lesson from Petter. Beauty is not enough. A few years after Petter was flooded, young hiker Karen Alexander returned to the area where Lake Petter used to be, now a giant dam. And... She snapped coming across a
3: sign which said "Lake Pedder, well, I just felt the anger there. I suddenly thought, my gosh, I realize why people do graffiti. I want to chop it down." It was a really powerful feeling I think that's the first time I recognized that I had a lot of anger about what had happened
1: and as this anger bubbled inside her, the Hydroelectric Commission announced their next ambitious plan, to dam the Franklin River.
3: That's what drove my commitment to the Franklin. You are not going to get this next
1: one. Only this time, there was another battle. Everyday Tasmanians, who needed jobs and food on the table, saw the dam as the key to prosperity.
3: There was always this concept that we need new industry to stay on the West Coast and to still be employed.
1: So how did you feel about it, even though it had mean you know, flooding the Franklin?
3: I was for it. I saw it as being a major economical boost to the coast. You'll have something else besides mining for people who lived here. People saw it as an opportunity. We are going to move Tasmania
2: forward, where Tasmanians can live in the same living standards, the same conditions as every other Australian, without the fear for their job,
3: without the fear for their future,
1: So on one side, the fear of losing jobs. The other, the fear of losing nature. What lengths will both sides go to, to win? This series is reported and hosted by me, Joe Lauder. Pia Wersu is our producer and reporter. Bethany Atkinson-Quinton is our supervising producer. Tynan King is our researcher. Our executive producer is Claire Rawlinson. Engineering by John Jacobs and our original theme music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Tim Roxburgh. Thanks also to Libraries Tasmania for their archival support. If you're enjoying Saving the Franklin, I reckon you'd like my other podcast, Who's Gonna Save Us? It asks if we want to avert the worst impacts of a climate crisis. Who's going to get us there? And how are they going to do it? We meet the people helping us navigate our way to a better future.
2: Who's gonna
1: save us? Who do you think's gonna save us? Honestly, um, this generation that's come. Who's gonna save us? Well, all of us, because we're putting up the signs. Uh, Everyone, people, protesters, people who vote, like every vote matters. I don't know. (laughs)
0: Please, someone save us.
1: Who's gonna save us?
2: Us, as you know, as a community. I don't think anyone's going to do it for us. Who's going to save us? The common worker, the, you know,
3: the kid on the street, the kid in class waiting for the adults to actually
2: do something about it.
1: Yeah, we are the future. I'm Joe Lauder and this is Who's Going to Save Us. This isn't another podcast about the devastation that climate change is causing because we don't just need to talk about the problem anymore. We know what's going on. We know how we got here. This is a show about how much better things could be and the people fighting to get us there. That's Who's Gonna Save Us. Search for it now or find it in the ABC Listen app.